all profit is value extraction. And that means that all profit is theft from you. Corporate America is on welfare, and, and they you got to get them off welfare. Hi, welcome to Cars and Comrades, your socialist car podcast. And uh, this week, it's the whole gang is here. Me, Bryant, Brandon, Zach, and Connor. How are y'all doing? Doing okay. Good. I'm almost healed up, a thing I will explain shortly. It took me a second to figure out why I heard five names there. I was like, yeah. me, Brian, Connor, and Zach. But that's five people. Uh, I get it now. I get it now. Yeah. It's, it's me, parentheses, Bryant, not me, comma, Bryant. Oh, okay. Now I actually get it. No, no, I've got multiple before. personalities. It's cool. <laughs> well, we're glad that they're all here. <laughs> so today we've got uh, a little bit of history. Uh, I, I guess we could call this uh, episode one of Unsafe at Any Speed, or chapter one, I should say. Uh, I'll be talking a little bit about the Corvette with a little bit of history of rear engine cars and. Do you mean the Corvair? Yeah, Corvair. Oh, fuck me. <laughs> <laughs> should we just start this whole thing over again? I don't know. I feel like no. All right. So we'll be talking about the Corvair, um, rear engine cars, swing axles nerdy physics stuff, dead Nazis, all Ooh, kinds of good like stuff. Yeah. Those, that's the only good kind of Nazi. Yeah. So, uh, but uh, I guess first we'll do some, some project car updates. And um, I don't remember which order we were going in last time. Oh, so, I did uh, random last time. Okay. Um, so, uh, Brandon, why don't you go first? I know you've got a, a good story. Yeah. Um, so, so last week, uh, everyone remembers I was very excited that I was finally going to start doing the body work uh, on my Ford, yep. getting the uh, getting the rocker welded in that I had made, finished making the rest of the rocker because I was doing it in sections, and then I was going to figure out uh, painting. Uh, instead, I set the car on fire. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah, it looked rough. It was not great. Um, it was It was having... It's normal problem where it floods, and so I took the carburetor off. I, I was I was I was being impatient and making bad decisions in general because I was frustrated, and I had stuff loaded into my van because I was going to be doing laundry and, and doing some running around, doing chores and shit. And I w- was already running late, and then the van wouldn't start. And I said, "Fuck this! I'm pu- pulling the carburetor off." And I'm turning the engine over to flush the gas out of the cylinders. Uh, But it was like acting sort of weird. And so I made an executive choice that was very bad. And my reasoning was that I wanted to make sure that I was actually getting uh, a good spark. And like that I wasn't having some sort of Mm. intermittent ignition problem. Uh So I made a, a really smart choice. And again, my engine had been flooding so badly that it had actually sprayed gas all over the intake. And, uh, yeah, so I, I, I gave it a spritz of starter fluid into the intake without the carburetor on it, which I've done, 
I've done that before safely and not had a problem on various motors. This one didn't like it and it backfired and started a fire and it was not a small fire. Like my whole, the whole interior is covered in soot. It burnt a big chunk of carpet. It burnt all the rubber lines inside the motor, fried the carburetor. I burned myself pretty good because uh, I could, even with the carburetor off, it was still sitting next to the intake. And I could see it like shooting flames as the gas inside of it was being vaporized. And it was still hooked up to the fuel line. Um, yep, bad. Uh, also, everyone, don't just keep a fire extinguisher in your car. Make sure you know how it works. Which seems very obvious, but I had a fire extinguisher in the van for this exact sort of problem. Uh, and it was not the normal kind that I'm used to where you pull the pin and squeeze the handle. It had a different mechanism and it wasn't complicated, but I didn't exactly think it through while everything was on fire. Uh, because I was about to go do laundry, I just grabbed my sheets and towels and stuff and threw that on it to try and smother it. And it kept it slow enough that my, my friend next door saw what was happening and started running buckets of water, like or pans of water over to me. And that, that got it out pretty quick. Uh, but in, in when I realized that the carburetor was spewing flames, I grabbed it with a towel and ripped it out. But it took me, I think, three attempts before it actually like ripped free because uh, there was uh, a heavy spring, like the uh, the throttle return spring, and uh, a weird tube that's part of like the, an old school like thermal choke. And so I had to rip all of that stuff free, and it tore my. It, I, I got burned pretty good. I had second and third degree burns on the inside of my hand and. It was yeah, uh, super cool. That's bad. I highly recommend it. Eey. Yeah, it took about a week and a half to heal. Um, did for pretty mild damage to the actual van. Like it melted a couple of plastic parts that I'm real like upset about, but those aren't catastrophic. They're cosmetic. Uh, otherwise, I have that happened the Monday after we recorded, and by Friday or no, I'm sorry, Saturday, I had it running again. Yeah, so that uh, was quick. Well, I, put, I ordered a new carburetor because the old one was having issues already and setting it on fire didn't help anything. <laughs> so I put a new carburetor on it that, that was inexpensive and showed up really quickly. Uh, I had to replace all of the fuel lines, vacuum lines, PCV lines, all that shit. And as of, I don't know, if I got it running on Saturday, I probably had it running pretty well by like Tuesday or Wednesday. And now it actually runs the best it has since I've owned it. Yeah, that's um, definitely good news. I, I haven't hooked up the choke yet because it's an electric choke, so I have to do it differently than the old one was, which isn't complicated. I just haven't felt like doing it, and it starts pretty easily when it's warm anyway. Yeah. So I just have the, the choke uh, zip-tied open. And, you know, you got you, you got to work it a little bit on a cold start. But if it's if it's run within the last day, it fires right up and runs really good. And then in the meantime, I actually have continued working on the body. Nice. I, I didn't get the new patch panel welded in because I, I realized that it was going to be easier to match all the body lines with it off and sitting next to me while I'm making a new one. So I have most everything finished. I, I got about probably 30% left to do on the last section of rocker panel that I'm making. And I don't know, uh, depending on when I'm able to get to it in the next few days, I should have the rockers patched up. Nice. Hell yeah. 
bought a new radiator for my Chevy because that started running hot and it was consistently running like 15 degrees hot. And I pulled the, I forget the name of the damn part. I, I looked at the inside of the radiator and when you would drag your hand across it, it would just disintegrate into dust. Hmm. Uh, all the fins on the inside of the radiator, fan shroud, that's the stupid word I was trying to remember. Uh, I pulled the fan shroud off and when I looked inside of it, it was all sorts of like literally like purple and green from corrosion. Yeah, not good. So I decided to upgrade to a nice aluminum radiator. So, oh, dude, yeah. uh, Friday I drove to Mecca. I, I went I went to Summit Racing and picked it up myself. Oh, hell yeah. Nice. nice. I had a buddy who wanted to go pick up some parts. And it's not close, but it's not that far either. So we just made a trip out of it. How far is it? 100 miles or so. That's not bad. Yeah. Do, do they have, like, an exit on the highway that says, like, if you're not a gearhead, get off here so you don't go to the, the holy <laughs> site or whatever? <laughs> No, it's just a big summit racing sign that you can see from the interstate. Okay. Nice. Dude, that place is sick. I like Did you, uh, yeah, my Did saving you go inside? Like, what's it like inside? The showroom's huge. Like it, it it is a full warehouse, but they do have like a proper showroom. They'll usually have two cars on display on giant like rotary table things. Nice. Uh this time it was a slammed F one hundred uh pickup. Sweet. That was done up really custom. It wasn't really to my taste, but there were parts of it that I really liked. And a C3 Corvette that also had been built pretty nicely, but you know, it's also not super my thing. The Ford just killed me because it was so lavender. But yeah, otherwise it's kind of everything. Like you, you, you go up to the register and tell them what all you want to buy or they look up whatever for you. You give them part numbers and they give you a ticket and it gets pulled from the warehouse so you have to like wait 20 minutes while your order gets picked. Yeah. But you can pick up stuff off the shelves and all too. I didn't do too much. I, I didn't spend too much just on a whim, but I did get some dress up parts for my the 300 and my Ford since I burned all of the stuff that was in it. Yeah, that, that's um, fair. Yeah. Uh, but dude, it's just so cool to be able to walk up and down aisles and it's like superchargers and he cylinder heads and just... Any fucking thing you can imagine. There's like a book section where there's books on every fucking performance thing that you can imagine. <laughs> it just as a dumb but small like victory, uh, I want to paint the engine that's going into the Cutlass green, but I couldn't find a good green engine paint, and I found the color that I was looking for at Summit. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. Nice. Dude, it's, it's fucking sick. And they have like a clearance section. Nice. <laughs> Dude, they had like some like high performance uh, cylinder head for small block Chevy that I almost bought just because they only had one, but it was a th like a thousand dollar head that was like two hundred and fifty dollars. Ooh, hell yeah! And I'm like, dude, I can buy the other one for a thousand dollars, and I still saved seven hundred dollars. <laughs> it's like I don't I don't even have a small block Chevy, but that's just too good a deal to pass up. I have a few. <laughs> I mean, you're no, never more than a stone's throw from a small block Chevy. Like, let's true. be honest, you can get your hands on one. It's yeah, they're they're they are easy to come by. Oh, and the other thing was like I kept finding wheels that I really wanted, except that all of their wheel, like the reason that they will only have one cylinder head or one wheel is because those are things that got opened and displayed so that they could do photography for the catalog and the website. 
So they don't need a set of four or even a set of two to photograph. They just take a picture of the one. So I'm just like, oh, this wheel is sick. This would look perfect on like X car. Do y'all have another one? And they're like, no, just that one. <laughs> My, uh, that doesn't seem like it would work as good. Yeah, I've, I've been to Summit uh, uh, one other time, and that time their clearance section was just like brain melting. There was like crate motors. Uh, I, I found a pair of big block cylinder heads, all just at like astronomically low prices. Because I, I think that their average price is between 50 and 75% off in that section. Hell yeah. God. That's sweet. Yeah. Is there only the one like warehouse or like showroom? It's at least three. Okay. You went to the one in Ohio? Right? Yeah. Uh, there's one in Georgia and there's one in Texas too. Fuck. They're also I think it's Texas. No, Texas isn't that far. Texas is fucking huge. It's oh, anywhere wait, from yeah, like I'm thinking of been to 30 hours away by car. <laughs> Sorry, I'm thinking about <laughs> yeah. like, oh, yeah, you can get that shit delivered to you. And it's <laughs> sorry. Yeah, no, I want to go to this place and and look through all this shit. But yeah, depending yeah, on where Texas, Texas isn't that far is a wild thought because you can be inside Texas and still be <laughs> yeah. 10 hours away from another part of Texas. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is country sized. Yeah. Yeah, it's like literally the size of like France or whatever. Is that it? Yeah, that no, I'm pretty sure it's got to be bigger than France. You should tell people from Texas that. I'm sure they would love to hear about their similarities <laughs> to France. Oh, they they really like it when you point out that uh, Alaska is like three times bigger than Texas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they do. For sure. You, you know, when someone's from Texas, you're not supposed to mess with them, right? <laughs> I've heard this. You know that started out as an anti-littering campaign. Yeah. <laughs> like, don't mess with Texas. Don't mess it up and leave trash here. It's like, well. Oh my God! Why does it make so much sense that Texas would take an anti-littering campaign and turn it <laughs> ignorant? <laughs> I mean, no offense to Texas, but that really could have been a fill in the blank. Like, why does it make so much sense that Texas would take blank? And turn it ignorant. Well, you know, you can put anything there. It, it still works. You're not wrong. <laughs> all, all love to our Texas fans. Sorry. Sorry if you live in Texas. It's it's not an awesome place in my mind. Yeah, we feel for you. But yeah, that that's me. Um, you know, that, that was it. Just a little old fire, some burns, and some body work. <laughs> nice. Eventful. Just the regular stuff. Well, I, let's see. What have I been up to? I, You know, last time I was talking about, I think I'm just going to get the same tires for my uh, MR2 as I did last time. Yep. Uh, turns out they don't make those anymore. Sounds about right. <laughs> and <laughs> turns out uh, Yokohama doesn't make any 14-inch tires. Hmm. Yeah, so I'm going to have to figure out something. I Right now, the front runner is, I think, their Nanking brand like summer performance tires but if the listeners have any uh tips on uh 14 inch summer performance tires you know that aren't too expensive let me know i i talked about how i really don't want to you know spend another like 600 dollars on wheels but i might end up having to do that dude i was telling you before it's an upgrade that's worth doing just because 
it's so hard to find 14 inch tires now. Yeah. I'm actually in the middle of trying to get in touch with this guy who has a set of 17 inch wheels for my cutlass because even 15, which is the next logical step up from the 14 is, is still not that common anymore. Yeah. I don't know. At least I have some money saved up so I could spend it if I need to, but I'd rather not. But, and it's also looking like I might need new tires for my uh, Sabaru if I'm going to have a set of summer tires for it and not just drive it in the winter on winter tires, which, you know, I think so far this summer I've driven it like two or three times just to like uh, pick up stuff that you need a hatchback for or whatever. But uh, I don't know. We'll see. One of the tires has a slow leak and they're kind of old and shitty. Um, They're not even summer tires. They're all seasons or whatever. But uh, I think I paid like 60 bucks for them because they were used off of my friend's Toyota Matrix. Nice. (laughs) <laughs> yeah <laughs> if you if you don't mind having some mismatched tires like i might have a, an extra set i, could, I don't know if that's I a good thing to have on an all-wheel drive car no it's probably not but <laughs> yeah um oh and and the the crack in the windshield on my mr2 is getting bigger so i'm gonna have to address that someday yeah, usually that's not I too thought... expensive, though. It's It seems like it would be more no. expensive than it is, usually. I think last time I had to do it was like, I don't know, six years ago or so, and it was like 250 I want to say, for a new windshield. Yeah, really? Uh, something like that. Even a new windshield for, for my Cutlass, which is, you know, 60 years old or something, I think that still ended up being like $400. Yeah. That's crazy. And I that was because I didn't, I didn't go with the cheapest option. Hmm, that's interesting. My, my girlfriend has got a, a new windshield appointment for like next month, and they're charging her like, I think almost $600. What? So These I don't know if she's getting ripped off. I've, I've, all, I've always had like the glass coverage on my insurance because Colorado is just like basically throwing rocks at your window constantly. And it, it always cost me like a hundred bucks you know so i never really had to pay out of pocket so i was like oh damn windshields are just crazy expensive out of pocket but i could swear he's getting ripped off i don't know i could swear a couple years ago so granted outdated but um i thought they used to be like you know 150 or so so 250 i'm like yeah that's probably about right 600 seems excessive I'd, i'd at least um i'd get a few more quotes just to make sure because that seems yeah, that know. seems a bit high. I wonder, does it have like the built-in defrost or anything like that? Oh, it's a newer maybe car, but it's, it's a newer car, but it's not got anything special in it. It's like a 2015, so you know it's not. Yeah. Like Do five know, or six years ago, I had a, a tree branch fall and hit the side window in a '90s Blazer, and it was eight hundred dollars. What? Wow! Fuck! Jesus! Go to the junkyard at that point. Oh, that was what I did. Yeah. But like the quote, three places I called, $800 was the only quote that I got because the other two said, we can't get that piece of glass. Huh. Wow. Jesus. Because it had like all of the plastic fairing that was around it and everything else. Like I didn't even actually pull one from a junkyard. I found a junkyard that would pull it for me because I'm like, no, I I break 60% of the glass that I look at. (laughs) Yeah. But um, yeah, that's all I've got going on. Um, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see uh, how much money I want to spend. 
But uh, I think Connor, I think it's your turn. Cool, cool. Um, I also had I've had a somewhat uh, eventful couple weeks. So I don't know. Last uh, couple weeks ago, I was working on the car. I, I think I'd mentioned a few things that I had done, but um, a couple weeks ago, I was able to change the uh, the diff fluid finally. So I got the you know extra tools I needed and all that shit. And so I was able to uh, fill that, which it feels a lot better. Um, it was chattering a lot. It's doing less so now. So it definitely needed to be changed. But what's weird is it like it looked clean as hell coming out. So I don't know. It was, was kind of weird. It was like a perfect, you know, golden brown color. It was like it looks like it hadn't even been used, you know. So that was weird. But the car definitely like the diff locks up a lot more consistently without as much chatter since I changed it. So it, it definitely needed to change. Hmm. Yeah. So I, I got that done. Um, and that's kind of a frequent thing with the new diff. I have to change it, you know, pretty much at least with every oil change. Um, so I'm going to, wow. prob- yeah, <laughs> that's a lot. Uh, it is a lot. Yeah. And I'm like, boy, this man, it, it's, I don't know if it's worth it, but it's, I will say it's good that, the rear end locks when I want it to. So, but yeah. what, what kind of, um, limited so diff is it? Is it like the clutch type? Or? Yeah, it's a clutch type. Uh, it's a Tomei. Okay. And this is like one of the cheapest diffs out there. The other ones are like just as temper- temperamental, but they were like 16, 1800. A few of them were over two grand. And I was like, Oof, no, <laughs> you kidding Jesus. me? Yeah. The one I have is like $900. A few years ago, so who knows what it costs right now? Fifteen hundred, yeah, probably. Yeah, probably I mean, it was, it was already an expensive fucking diff, and I've got to order their fucking diff fluid, of course. Which, you know, it's like they they say that it's good that you get their stuff, and you know, I've heard a lot of people who you know at shops and stuff are like, yeah, we don't put anything else but the Tomei fluid in there. We don't know what their secret recipe is, but yeah, don't fuck that up. So. So I do, and that's like fifty bucks for a jug of that, which is real expensive. When, especially when you got to do it every, they say three thousand miles. I'm probably going to go, you know, five thousand or whatever. Like, you know, come on, yeah. I'm not doing, I'm not, I'm not spending that much every three thousand miles. No. <laughs> I wonder if you could like put like a pump and a filter on the diff. That would be cool to get a little more life out of it. Yeah, that'd be sweet. Um, that would be sweet, but no. Nope, but I do have a you know higher capacity and cooling fins on the fucking diff cover and all that, so it should at least stay cool, which should prevent it from getting too fucked up. But I do know that um, uh, you know Gail Banks, like the the performance diesel type guy. Not familiar. Um, um, it's mo- he mostly does stuff with uh, diesel trucks, but he's you know involved with all kinds of like performance and turbocharging stuff. Mm-hmm. Real interesting guy. He's like in his 80s or 90s now, I think, but still working. And uh, one of the things they developed for their company was like special diff cover for like uh, heavy duty trucks or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they looked at all the other ones on the market. And I don't know how much of this is just their marketing bullshit or if it's actual science or whatever. But like, oh, yeah, you know, these that have like the fin covers with extra capacity, a lot of them don't actually circulate the diff fluid properly. 
um, enough to actually keep it cool and also keep it, you know, on the the gears and everything. Cool. And and supposedly the one that they designed actually does, you know, circulates air around it properly on the highway and keeps it cool and keeps it lubricated or whatever. But I don't know. Like I, I think it's just for heavy duty trucks. I don't think they make them for. Well, I don't know if it was for that, but I, I saw somebody post a video where they found similar diff covers, but like cast a couple of them in like a clear plastic just so that they could put it up on a lift, put the clear cover on it and show you how the fluid circulates under different conditions. Yeah. That might've been the same one. I'm, I'm not sure. Okay. Yeah. If it, it, it sold me. I was just like, yes, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. I like the little demonstrations, things like the Lucas oil thing in the fucking auto parts store. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Come on. It gets me every time. I'm like, well, I got to put that in my, <laughs> my motor. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure that they just like put the gears a l- with a little bit more clearance on the ones, so it goes a little easier. But you know, it could be, yeah, it could be a trick. It probably is. <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, I got the special stuff. I did the did the fluid change, and that was great. Uh, the other thing was, I was under the car, and I was trying to find out why my car had suddenly gotten. Uh, much much louder and definitely had an exhaust leak i was like fuck i was like i parked the car and it was fine then and i parked it in like uh i've been working in the city and so i parked it and then as soon as i started up to go home um because i was at work and i i started up and i was like ah fuck and i started driving i was like fuck i think my catalytic converter got stolen because it was like god damn it and i was like man i didn't think they could get me because i'm so fucking low you know who would steal my catalytic converters but i was like it was real loud so anyway the last week the other weekend i was when i did the fluid change i I got a chance to look at it and i discovered that my header is like cracked all the way through it is totally broken yeah totally broken apart i i saw the picture it it made me sad to look at yep so um was this was this an aftermarket header that you put on when you did that whole engine no it wasn't brand new so Look, I, I spent a lot of money on this rebuild, but I already had headers, which I had purchased used several years earlier. Okay. So I was, look, I was trying to save that money because I'm like, yo, these are some big fucking bills on this shit. I'm like, do I need to spend that extra 600 bucks on new headers? Nah, these are fine. They were not fine. Which one of them uh, got welded up because he found a crack. He's like, oh yeah, there's a, you know, this one's a little, uh, got a little hole in it. And he, he welded up and repaired it and, you know, did a great job doing so. So that's actually not the one that cracked. The other one cracked now. And I was like, all right, I think that's a sign that this uh, this is not going to hold up any longer. So I ordered new headers, which is, of course, not an expense that I was looking forward to. But I ordered new headers and uh, I think I'm going to heat wrap them this time. I don't know. I don't know if that'll help or hurt or whatever, but I didn't heat wrap them the last time and didn't seem to do me any good so might as well have the uh lower temperatures under the hood at least the only problem i found with doing that is if you have any kind of fluid leak it'll like wick into that um wrap and like catch on fire or smoke or whatever yeah it could be an issue for that Right now, brand well, new motor, in my personal experience, you don't need exhaust wrap to catch something on fire yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i would 
I know you already dropped probably big bucks on new headers, but I would look into seeing if a local shop would ceramic coat them for not too much. Oh, uh, the ones I got are shit's... ceramic coated. Oh, really? I got new still... ones. I wanted to get the stainless you steel ones, them. actually, and then they were like, oh, yeah, these will be available in November 2022. And I was like, my shit's broken right now. So, no. Okay. <laughs> uh, so they Dude, had... that, that shit's killing me lately. Every time I try and buy something, I have to, like, pay attention to see if it's on back order for the next two months. Yep. Yeah, everything's been really bad lately for car parts. So, yep. yeah, I waited seven months to get new catalytic converters. I put those on, and then pretty much weeks later, headers got broken through, and I'm like, son of a bitch. So yeah, I got to fix that. Uh, the ones, the new ones I got are, you know, ceramic coated in some fashion. So I don't know. They're DC Sports uh, 350Z headers. So they're some of the cheapest ones. Some of the cheaper ones out there. They're not the cheapest, I don't think. But you know, okay. I don't know, like import, like Z stuff. What 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 is the cheapest? What does that mean? Um, you can get like headers. I'm pretty, I mean, there's really janky ones that you can get for a hundred dollars. I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend that. Some of the cheapest legitimate ones I think are probably around, I've, I've seen like 350, 400. Um, okay. That's, that's better than I was expecting actually. Cause that's about what I pay for headers. Yeah. That's that. Now that's, you know, I think you're taking some risks with that. It's usually not, sta- it's almost not going to ever be stainless in that case or whatever, but then you come up to the DC Sports, and those are... I mean, you already have pretty low selection, but those are... I can't remember they were five or $600, but, you know, more than I want to spend. Dude, if headers are going to be more than four or $500, I'll build my own. Oh, yeah. I wish... Uh, I am not that good. <laughs> Nowhere near. I'm not even... Not even would, wouldn't even attempt it. I'm not good enough of a fabricator, but I'm good enough of a welder, and I like to learn. Yeah, there you go. I'm, I'm not, that's like for real my attitude because it would probably end up costing me $300 in tubing just to build a set of headers. But I don't know. It's always really cool when you can, when somebody's like, Oh, what kind of headers are those? And you're like, Oh, I built them myself. Yeah. That's gotta be sweet. They, they perform like shit. You want to say it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know that. I don't necessarily know the difference. A lot of the headers that I saw, like all the other ones are like, you know, they're around 900 to a thousand. And I'm like, I what the fuck did you even do differently? They look the same. They have the same bends and everything. I'm like, uh, you are very confident with that kind of price, but yeah. So I got mid mid tier ones. It actually does like there are people who dyno tune them because there is you, you know about tuning to the pulse and that sort of thing, right? I actually do not. Oh, um. It's it's more than we're gonna want to get into like right now, but ba- basically like there are uh pul- like waves in yeah. your exhaust that push and pull, mm-hmm. and a well uh built and well designed header is going to m- actually increase your performance by yeah in a roundabout way sucking like it, it, it improves exca- exhaust scavenging exactly it improves and scavenging sucks yeah. a little bit extra out yep um and it really it just boils down to like the length of the tube yeah. Yeah, it's all like resonance, like, you know, pipe yes. organs, that kind of thing. Yeah, which, I mean, most of the pre-made headers, you know, it's like, yeah, I get that like some are a thousand, some are six, but I'm like, I feel like they've all done the same kind of engineering you would think, but I don't know. Anyway, I'm sure some are better also, than others. Don't, don't underestimate the fact that some people are going to use like, you know, 030 
like uh, material, and some people are going to use 060. Oh, that, yeah, that's I think that the biggest going to last a whole lot longer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, I got the mid-tier ones. I think they'll be fine enough. Um, they should be whatever. It'll be fine. It's just an expense I didn't want to didn't want to take on. So I am currently back to looking for a second job, which not really a big fan of doing. But I was like, well, I don't know. Maybe just for a little bit. I don't know. So that sucks. But uh, I got to say, inflation is fucking killing me. So and I have a lot of car problems that money would solve. So trying to yeah. trying to maybe try get, get a few extra bucks. I don't know. We'll see how long that lasts. But uh, anyway, so I'm looking for that. And then the other cool news, which is not exactly car related, but it's super shitty. And I'm sure everybody would know would like feel like this is pretty shitty. Uh, next week, it looks like there is a very good chance that uh, my partner and I are going to be evicted from a place that we don't live currently. <laughs> so, so uh, what? yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. Our old place is long story short. It was a condo building we rented from the unit owner. They recently sold the building, which was a whole shitty process and screwed a whole lot of fucking people. But basically, they forced everybody to sell for a really shitty price. And then they took over the building and they're converting it to apartments. So it has finally been actually converted to apartments in the last uh, couple months. And my partner and I, who moved out in, you know, uh, May or, you know, at the in April, we were totally out, uh, you know, by May and we've been getting charged rent as renters there for some fucking reason. And, uh, we got a five day notice that they were going to file eviction for us last week. And so we've been emailing and calling and I even got into their office and I talked to someone, but we have gotten no response yet. So, uh, it seems like they're probably going to go ahead and file for an eviction and we're going to have to go to court, which is super cool. And I'm very excited about. Yeah, that's that's shitty. I know that can like really fuck up uh, like if you're going to rent somewhere else in the oh, future. Yeah, yeah. If, if we if uh, we don't spend a sufficient amount of money on a good lawyer, uh, it could ruin our lives. Yeah, it's like our housing costs could double and just we not be able to get, you know, housing because. Here, you know, I don't know what it's like in everyone else's market, but like it slowed down a bit. But when we were looking, I mean, we had to like look at a place and we had to make a decision that day to put in an application. We couldn't wait because they'd have literally 50 applications already. And the only reason my partner and I get housing is because my partner has fucking incredible credit. Outrageous. I don't even I'm like, I don't even know how you hit those numbers. I cannot figure it out. But she has incredible credit, and so that is why we get housing, which is, like, shitty because it's, like, there's a lot of people who could pay just as much or whatever, and they do not get to live in a place, or they have to keep looking because whatever. But, yeah, and there's no – we can't wait. We can't do anything. So it's it's been really hot here. So if, like, we have an eviction on our record, uh, that's going to be a hard no when we're up against, you know, 20 other applicants. yeah. You know what I mean? So that's bad. That's real bad. Yeah, that sucks. It's also like I don't understand the the renter's credit system 
But that's like a, another whole fucked up mess. I, I would take this for you if I could. I don't have to worry yeah. about this shit. Just it's, it's, find a way to be like, no, it's him. <laughs> well, I mean, it's ultimately, I I think we'll win because we very clearly do not live there. And we made clear that we don't live there. But, you know, if our unit owner didn't do exactly the right thing, then we could get screwed for it. So, yeah, very... uh. Not the best situation, and uh, we're going to be talking to a lawyer. Uh, my partner's going to do I, her. She's in a D&D group, and her dungeon master's a lawyer, so she's going to talk to her, see if she could help us or if she could recommend someone at her firm to uh, help us out. What a funny series of words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, that's that's been my couple weeks since we've recorded it's wow it's been interesting like brandon <laughs> you you know uh if i can take a second to plug something um in denver there's a a thing that's going to be on the ballot in the fall uh called no eviction without representation Ooh. and basically the city is going to provide public defenders to renters facing eviction and charge landlords um, to to fund this program. Oh, that's good. I forgot that that's not already how it works, which I know I've heard about it. Yeah. These people who face eviction are not appointed an attorney, which again is fucking crazy to me. Yeah. I, you know, this country is so evil. It's just, it's like a cartoon evil supervillain. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. fucked up. So that seems like at least the bare minimum of, uh, uh, you know, legislation there. You would think, um, at least they have it in Boulder now for what it's worth. Um, and I think in New York city too. And from what I've heard, that's had some issues, but, uh, it's, it's a lot better than nothing, you know? Oh yeah. I, I couldn't admit if I didn't have anyone to represent us, like we would almost certainly just get an eviction on a record and we'd be fucked. And we're clearly yeah. not wrong here, but like, yeah, having having a lawyer is important. Definitely, if you're ever fighting traffic tickets and stuff, uh, you know, don't don't cheap out on yourself. But if you're up against the law, fucking pay for a good lawyer. Bad lawyers are not worth much. <laughs> not not as not worth as much as they charge. Yep. Yeah. So anyway, that's that's me. Uh, I know that was was a long one, but been interesting yeah definitely what, what what is the deal it's like in the ancient chinese curse of may you live in interesting times <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. so zach yeah. Uh, what, oh, yeah. uh, what what have you been up to uh my last couple weeks have been decidedly less interesting than that mostly positives on my end well, that's over good here. i did did almost get crushed to death a little bit Ooh, that sounds um, interesting <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's um just you know don't be lazy when you're working on cars uh do things the right way i was uh replacing a cv axle on my brother-in-law's subaru outback and i thought that i could yank the hub around with a, a come along and a ratchet strap to get it back into position without taking the hub off of the strut because I didn't want to have to realign the, uh, the the camber. Basically, there's an eccentric bolt 
that adjusts the camber of the hub. And I just didn't want to deal with it. So I was like, ah, I can just like pull on it with these straps and, and come along and like get it back into position. You know, Zach, and, uh, sorry to interrupt your story real quick. What you yeah, could have done in this situation is not worried about that eccentric bolt. And then when you put it back, you could have just gone all the way so that it had all the negative camber and looked awesome. And you wouldn't have to fucking guess. I tried to convince him of that, but, you know, he's a fucking nerd, and he didn't want that hella flush slam boy fitment. Fucking square. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Such a loser. If you just uh, anyway. max out all your suspension parts, you'll always know you're in alignment. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Go, yeah. go on. Yeah, no. <laughs> But uh, yeah, on top of doing that janky redneck engineered bullshit, I uh, I had one side of the car up on a jack stand and no wheel chocks, no e-brake on because it was an electronic e-brake and I was like, I don't have a little handle to yank on, so whatever. It's in gear. It'll be fine. Hmm, nope. Yep. Turns out when you put uh, as much tension as you possibly can on something, it tends to move. <laughs> And it tended to move when I was all the way up under the car, like full body. My toes were Ugh. under the front bumper. Ugh. You know, I was curled up in there all the way, reaching back, trying to, you know, we had one of the ratchet straps going towards the back of the car to keep it in line and, and the come along going across to the other, you know, side of the car to pull it in. Yeah, it was, it was a bad situation. Um, it started to lean and I, I have never slithered on the concrete faster in my entire life. <laughs> it was like a big, terrified snake just whipped my body out of there. Um, that was always like a serious fear of mine. And then the Har Harbor Freight had like multiple jack stand recalls. And now you're doing this to me. I'm just, I'm just going to go buy a two post lift. Fuck this. Yeah. I, it's honestly, if you have the space for it and can make it work, like they're really, they've come down a lot in price. You can get reputable ones for like two grand. Yeah. You know, I was about to say most like commuter cars, like, you know, it, you can save up a little money. If you're dumping a bunch of money into mods and stuff and you've got the space for it, get a two post lift, man. They're, they're affordable. I've actually been considering buying one off my buddy. It's, it's under a thousand bucks. I think it would be for me. Yeah. Dude, use, you it. can, oh, do it do because. It. Yeah, two post lifts are way more attainable than you would think. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely would like to have one at some point. Yeah, I'm trying. Yeah, to until he told me how much he paid for his, but he didn't. He ended up not installing it. Um, I, yeah, I was shocked. I, I, I always thought of that as like one of those unobtainable, like five figure sort of purchases. Yep. Yeah. And he bought his a number of years ago, and I think he paid like eight hundred dollars. Wow. Used. Used but uninstalled, like used in the sense that it was purchased by someone from the retailer and then never installed. Oh, and then he bought yeah. it and did the same thing. Yeah, wow. <laughs> fucking lucky, man. It was under two grand new, though. Yeah, they're, they're really not that bad. I've been trying to convince my parents to let me put one in their garage. They have a little side <laughs> garage that's like... Uh, yeah, I don't know if you've seen houses that are set up like that, where the driveway goes straight into a normal garage, but then off like 90 degrees, there's like another little garage. Y you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I get what you're saying. I don't think I've ever seen yeah, it before. It's a weird setup, but they they have that little garage over there. And I'm like, can I put a 
two posts lift in your garage and they're like, I don't know, we'll think about it, dude. I, I don't think we want that. You already work on your cars over here enough. Because <laughs> I don't have any room to work on them at my house because I currently have four cars and am getting another one in holy shit two weeks. Goddamn. <laughs> so yeah, it's been a busy couple weeks for me. Other than almost getting crushed, I have secured the right color of door and fender for my Ranger. Uh, unfortunately they have the same type of damage that my current ones do oh come on a lot less severe why would literally the same exact fucking spot the same goddamn spot man well you couldn't find one that didn't have that it's like the rarest color in the world it's like this dark maroon color like i think it was like a special option or something i thought that was the only color they came in what are you talking about (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I feel like that's like the most iconic color for them, but like there's so many goddamn tan ones out there. I'm like, fuck these fucking tan ones. Tan the maroon. Rangers? Yes. I dude. didn't know they ever yes. came in tan. <laughs> yeah, tan and yeah. the bright red color. Okay, I do remember the bright red, yeah. Yeah. And the blue. Yeah, no, I remember the dark blue. Tan. Yep, quite a few of those. Definitely don't remember tan. What the fuck? I don't Maybe know. Maybe it was like a regional thing. Could be. Like, maybe it was, we it was just like a, a lot more down here. I think if it was like a Toyota paint color, it would be champagne or something like that, right? Yeah, probably closer to like champagne. I guess I call it tan, but it's well, that champagne, yeah, uh, champagne is what is they the put best. on the Tacomas. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Ford had a very similar huh. color of this Gen Ranger. I had no but idea. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> no, no worries. Finally, fucking found them. There, it's not bad. I hammered out the fender pretty well. Like the bolt holes will line up. That's all I really give a shit about. And um, the door, I'm just gonna have to. I'm honestly probably gonna use vice grips or something and just bend the lip in one direction or the other so it doesn't scrape. So the door opens and closes, nice. and it's just gonna be dented. I don't really care at this point. But the ranger is still fucked up there's something still going on with the transmission i don't know what it is it's just continuously leaking i think it's the tail shaft gasket maybe it's like right behind the box yeah. right in between the actual gearbox and the transfer case is a little tail shaft it seems like it's coming from there i don't know whatever that's like low on my priority list I also got all of the mechanical problems fixed with the free lexus that i got so I just need to make a junkyard run for that guy to get a couple interior panels and a rear taillight housing. And that one's good to be sold. And I just solidified a pickup date for the Cobra. We're doing it oh, uh, the, yeah. the weekend of August 28th. I'm going down there and we're picking it up. So yeah, I've been like going like crazy. Just every fucking spare minute I get trying to work on shit uh, to get, at least one car gone so that I have room for the Cobra. And I also am, you know, still putting mods on my Subaru because why not? I totally <laughs> yeah. have time and energy and effort to do this. Um, I think I talked about it last week. I, I bought a set of wheels yep. for it like online and they were taking fucking forever. They still say estimated to ship on the 18th of this month, but they're at my house now. So (laughs) if you're going to buy parts from throttle that does all those like giveaways and shit, they like team up with Hoonigan sometimes just be aware they can like, you'll, you'll have to wait a long time if some shit says back ordered and they're probably not going to communicate that well, but 
oh, this shit's way cheaper than like everywhere else. So, you know, just be prepared to, to deal with that. But yeah, they're here. And then I also bought another set of wheels from someone locally because I was sick of waiting and I didn't think they were ever going to come. And now that I look at both wheels side by side, I am torn. Uh, so I threw up both of them in our chat and then maybe we'll throw them up on the Instagram too. If, uh, if the, uh, the fans want to chime in, they're both bronze, but I got one set. That's a, the Ray's Graham lights that are five spoke. And then I got the Koenig lockouts that are like eight spoke and the Koenigs are an eight inch wide wheel. The razor a seven inch and damn, man, I'm just like, I'm torn. I really mm, don't that's know. Tough. I don't know which ones to go with. I think the razor quite a few pounds lighter per wheel though. Ooh, mm. I, well, yeah, they're, they're smaller. What's yeah, the widest like tire? The look of the Koenig ones. Those look pretty sick. What is the widest tire you can fit on? Um, you can fit on a seven inch. Ooh, twenty five maybe. No, I think you can go to two forty five, two thirty five. I actually don't know. What size? Because I feel like a lot of there? a lot of eight inch wheels come with two twenty. Well, I know the Z's came with uh, two twenty fives. Um, and then they put, I think in the rear, uh, they were a little bit bigger. I think they put 255s oh, or something. Shit. Yeah, these sevens have two And it's like an eight and a half inch. Okay. Yeah, they've got this, the set of rays that I have have 225s on them right now, which is, you know, I think that's pretty much the limit, honestly. Yeah. It's, by the looks of it. It's probably all you need for that car, although I do think those are a little. A little on the narrow side, but it might benefit yeah. you to have the lighter wheels. So, right, that's the thing. Like, do I want wider wheels for more grip, or do I want lighter wheels for less rotating mass? And, and I feel like with with an with an already having an all wheel drive car, it's I don't know if the grip is quite as big of a of an issue. Maybe under braking, but I don't know. I know right now. I mean. Here's the thing. I've been super lazy and I'm still running my winter tires on it. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I have broken traction a couple times, like ripping around some back roads on some corners. Cause I, I, you know, if I break really late into the corner and then immediately stomp on it, it'll chirp. But that's, it? that's also, Oh, that, you, yeah. yeah, you don't know. You're probably fine with two twenty fives then. Yeah, probably. Ooh. Uh, if if I can just I uh but so my my Ford is a straight six and makes mm-hmm. dog shit power. It's probably it was probably like 180, 160 horsepower ever. But once I got the new carburetor on it, it ran so much better. I chirped my tires on accident for the first time. Oh shit! Oh <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I let up on the clutch a little bit too aggressively, and I, I heard it squeal. Nice. Yeah. That's Sorry. I felt special because I did a big boy thing. <laughs> hey, that's good news, man. That's awesome. But yeah, let's um, I can I can either throw them up on, on the Instagram story or oh yeah, we'll throw them up some... there. We'll, we'll get we'll get and, uh, we'll get yeah. we'll get listener input on what wheels Zach should should stick with. Yeah, it's right now. I'm like halfway considering keeping both and trying to sell the stock set, but I think that's a poor financial decision. Ooh, so. I don't know. Wheels are wheels. <laughs> that's true. That's true. I'd I just rather, don't think I would get very 
much for them, you know? Yeah, but OEM wheels never look that good, so... No, no they don't. They were going to be my winter set, but now it's like, oh, man, I've got... Like you I said, have cool I've got winter tires Or winter wheels. I got, the, I got the mismatched set of tires on the Rays. That literally all four different tires. Different manufacturers. <laughs> nice. Completely different. They're all the same size, but different wear. So, I don't know. Those are probably garbage. I mean, I could technically run them, but like Bryant was saying, might not be the best idea on an all-wheel drive car. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it'll just wear out your diffs quicker. Yeah. Hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, let me know in the in the Instagram story. Y'all y'all got any opinions, strong opinions one way or the other? I I do think I like the look of the Koenig ones better, but maybe that's cuz they they're brand new. Yeah, but I don't know. Yeah, that's fair. That's uh, I was fully ready to just ditch the Koenigs, like try to return them or or sell them locally, but then I pulled them out and I was like, "Oh, they're so shiny and new though." <laughs> they're not all dusty and old. <laughs> Yeah. But um I think that's all my updates. It's been fucking chaos for me the last two weeks. So. Sounds like it. Although speaking of uh since we're talking about wheels, I have one more quick update. I think um because I had I tried the wheel spacers and my wheels were rubbing. I think next week or the week after, I think I'm gonna try and raise the car up like a quarter inch in the front. Just a little bit to get some more clearance, and then I think I'm going to cave and buy a fender roller and roll the fucking fender out. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's the hot boy answer. I don't want to hear all this less low bullshit. No, no, no. Fender roller and more low. Come you know on, what? Maybe man. I should. Tr- maybe I should just try the fender roller and then see if it works. And if it doesn't, then I'll. I'll have. I might have to just raise the car a little bit because. Those wheel spacers would solve me a lot of problems because, like right now, I can't drift. Not with not when I'm going to grind through the tie rod end at some point and have a real problem. So, yeah, no, you're thinking about it all wrong. Like, just remember that when you drift, that's probably not going to be the pass that destroys the tie rod ends. <laughs> that's that's true. That's a that's a good that's a good mentality to have. But uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so we were talking about wheels and. I was like, oh, yeah, I got wheel fitment woes that I'm going to try and deal with. And I think I'm just going to be a hack and roll the fucking vendors. Yeah, I mean, at least you're not just cutting them. Yeah, I guess that would be worse. Yeah. So I don't know. We'll, we'll see. But uh, I, I'm, I'm kind of leaning towards that, which means I have to like buy the $100 tool and buy a heat gun. And, you know, I think on eBay, they're $40. Yeah, I figure it's not that bad. So. That doesn't mean it's a good one, but it'll probably get you through a couple of fenders. I, that's really all it needs to do. And I'm like, eh, I guess this would, wouldn't be the worst thing to have on hand. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, sorry. Just wanted to throw that one in there because I forgot. No, that's I, good. I, yeah. I did, by the way, just for anyone wondering, I did have an edible before uh, uh, <laughs> for this episode. <laughs> so it, uh, it started kicking in just as we started recording. <laughs> perfect time it was great i was like oh cool i'm gonna forget half of my shit which i did <laughs> hey i do that stone cold sober buddy i don't even need any help well i think that was probably the yeah, longest gotta keep things interesting it's probably the longest car uh car update section but uh it sounds like it was been a, a very eventful week for everybody yeah yeah i could have used yeah, it to be yeah. less eventful yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah me too
All right, so we're back, and we're going to be talking about Chapter 1 of Unsafe at Any Speed. Just for the listeners, uh, this is not going to be an eight-part series. You know, there's eight chapters in this book. I'm going to lump some of them together, but this I I felt was interesting enough uh, that it deserved its own episode, Chapter 1, The, the Corvair. And also, I wanted to tr- to cram in some stuff about uh, Tatra and Volkswagen uh, that's semi-related and involves uh, Nazis dying. So I, I felt that would be a good part uh, to be on our podcast. Yeah, there's definitely elements of that that I like. <laughs> so I think I'll kick it off here talking about uh, just sort of the science and physics of swing axles and rear engine cars. Uh, so this might be a little bit nerdy and it, maybe it's not the greatest uh, in an audio format, but I'll, I'll do my best to explain this because uh, it does have relevance to the, the Corvair. Um, and this stuff is not necessarily in the book in depth. Uh, so I wanted to go into a little bit more depth. So the swing axle is a type of simple independent rear wheel suspension designed and patented by Edmund Rumpler in 1903. So it's pretty old technology. Well, hold on now. I mean, I know this is probably not a good, uh, this is going to end well, but independent rear suspension back in the 60s, that seems like the best rear end ever. I'm, I'm, I'm sold on it for right now. I'm sure I'm going to change my mind, but... <laughs> yeah, so it, it GM had a couple of uh, IRS cars in the sixties. Yeah, um, were there? I don't know. A few, a few GM ones and some other ones. I'm sure. Uh, I think it was Pontiac Tempest in the early sixties had IRS, but then actually went back to solid axle in the mid sixties. Ooh. Yeah. And I want to say that had the same transaxle as the Corvair, but different suspension setup. Hmm. That was the one with the like flexible drive shaft, right? I don't know. I literally only knew about that car because of uh, my cousin Vinny. Because there is no way that these tire marks were made by a 64 Buick Skylock. These marks were made by a 1963 Pontiac Tempest. Objection, Your Honor. Can we clarify to the court whether the witness is stating opinion or fact? This is your opinion? It's a fact. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... The swing axle does have some advantages to over like a, a solid axle. It has better ride quality, uh, less unsprung weight. Um, you know, each tire is moving independently of each other. So, you know, if you go over a pothole with one uh, tire, it's not going to make your whole rear end jiggle around. But they have plenty of disadvantages, uh, mostly that the, uh, the, so the way that, Swing axles work is think of it as an uppercase T lying on its side, and you know one one uh, part of the T is the axle and one is the tire, and they're rigidly attached to each other. Um, and then on the back end of that T is where the pivot point is at the differential. Okay. So the the tire and the axle all pivot as one unit. And so your camber changes as the suspension travels. Uh, so that's the main disadvantage. Is I feel like that. I thought. I feel like most suspension systems, the camber will go 
increase in the negative direction if as the body drops on any suspension i would think right Wouldn't, isn't that the natural yeah it's it's much more dramatic of a change with um mm-hmm. with swing axles like um with uh let's let me think how how this works i i don't know all the science behind this but i know with struts it's pretty linear but it also it um changes camber in the way that you don't want it to be um with double wishbones you can change the the ratio of the length of the arms the upper and the lower so that your chamber your camber changes um in the way that you want it to so it it um, your inside tire on a corner will um, have a better contact patch. Whereas with struts, it's it's less of a contact patch. Hmm. And with... Uh, yeah, so you're, you're saying the outside, the outside tire would... You want negative camber under load so that the outside tire will tend to straighten up and give you the greatest contact patch in a turn. Yeah, and... yeah. I always forget which is negative and which is positive. Negative is the top goes inward. Positive is where the top goes outward, and that's very rare, except on super performance applications, but that's a whole other story. Yeah, so negative negative is when the top goes inwards, yeah. and positive is... Okay, so um, so basically, like, with a, with a swing axle, you're going to get negative camber as it compresses and positive camber as it um, moves up like rebounds um, or a suspension droop. So like if you go over a bump, yeah, you're going to camber the, in. Um, the, yeah. Yeah. And that that's normal. That causes more problems too. Sorry. Were you saying something? Uh, that's generally, I mean, that's what my suspension does. So like not the worst thing in the world, not a huge disadvantage. I don't think. Well, I mean, it's it's just much more dramatic on with a swing axle. Yeah. So, one of the co- problems that that causes is um, if you go over a bump that lifts the re- whole rear end, both rear tires can go into positive camber where the, mm. the underside of the tire tucks under. Yeah, that's not great. And, and when you land, it's probably not yeah. going to go well. Well, when you land, it can just stay that way because the it's running on the. Um, the outside edge of the tire. Yep. Um, and that's what caused a lot of the problems with the Corvair. So I, I have one explanation that I copy and pasted here uh, from a Volkswagen forum. Volkswagens have the same suspension setup. Hmm. Due to the nature of the swing axle, the roll center is located above the pivot point of the axle. And now the roll center is basically... If you take the car and you just push on it and you see the body rocking, it's the axis that that pivots around. Okay. And that, so what you, what you want to have a stable car is to have the roll center just underneath the center of gravity or very close to the center of gravity so that the the weight of the car isn't acting like a lever to move it and rock it around. Yeah, so it's it's that way it's rotating around almost like a singular point that is exactly yeah, okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Um but with swing axles the roll center is above the pivot point of the axle. So this means that any cornering force applied to the wheels causes 
a lifting of the chassis. Ooh, yeah, that's bad. That would be <laughs> bad, yeah. So there's a few solutions that people have tried for this. You can have different tire pressures front and back to, to make understeer. And I, I've done this on my MR2. I have like 30 PSI in the front and 35 in the rear so that it is more prone to understeer and that's a little bit safer. You can put a front sway bar in there to make it more prone to understeer. Uh, you can put limit straps on the suspension so that it can't go to full droop. Or you can have like a, a spring that connects the rear wheels, uh, basically acting like a sway bar to uh, make them move together like a solid uh, axle rather than independently. Hmm, so kind of un- um, make me undo everything that makes it good to to offset the like the bad thing yeah yeah pretty much gotcha so i mean in the end you know today swing axles are are obsolete no i don't think anyone uses them except uh tatra heavy duty trucks Mm -hmm. um and that is useful for like an off-roaded setting where you want sometimes you want the the camera to change like if you have like more of a round profile off-road tire, uh, it makes more sense that way rather than a flat bottom. Hmm. So like, I don't. In uh, I don't in really the... understand the swing axle as you're describing it, but it looks like effectively in a weird way the type of front suspension Ford used in their vans and trucks throughout yeah. the seventies uh, and eighties into the nineties. So they called that the twin I-beam suspension. Twin I-beam, but like you know, it's not driven, but with otherwise it looks the same. Right. And that's been used by a few um, companies. I think the Hillman Imp was the same. And that is, you know, a better solution because the the pivot points are on the opposite side of the car from the wheel. Yeah. Um, so yeah. you have a much longer lever uh, or a longer axle so that change in camber is much less for the same amount of suspension travel and it's it's good for like off-road because it's pretty tough it's a a solid axle it's not doesn't have as many pivot points in it for it to break but but like i said it's not used really for anything other than trucks uh today yeah i don't know much about it but i've I've just heard that it's good for off-roading so right like what yeah, you said. Ironically, my Ranger has this setup, so it's one of the most desirable layouts for off-roading, but it's engine and transmission combo makes it one of the least desirable trucks <laughs> for off-roading, which is uh, really bittersweet. So, Wait, is your Ranger the twin I-beam? It is, yep. Oh, I didn't know they did it in Rangers, too. That sounds interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that with... The four-wheel drive ones, they have the differential integrated into one side of the axle. They absolutely um, do. The yeah. uh, the I-beam on that side is actually the front diff cover as yeah. well, which is kind of cool. And I'm not sure how they you like have like universal joints and everything connecting all that. Uh, I'm sure it's complicated and silly. But the one, <laughs> one of the advantages of regular swing axles like in the rear is you you only need one u-joint at the pivot point at the uh the differential um and tatra actually didn't have universal joints they just have the pinion gear rotating in an arc 
<laughs> so they just have two two pinion gears on either side on either axle. So uh, I'll talk a little bit about Tatra. Um, they're a uh, a Czech company that's still around today, making heavy trucks like the um, the War Rig in uh, Mad Max Fury Road was built on a Tatra chassis, like a like a mining truck in Australia. Hell yeah! And um, like I said, they they have some advantages to uh, you know going off road heavy heavy trucks and and you can. The way that they're set up, you have a um, like a backbone tube for the chassis. Um, so you have like a, a big heavy duty tube that the drive shaft runs in and then like differentials and axles attached to it in a line. So you can have like six, eight, ten wheel drive trucks. So it's pretty, uh, you know, modular way of designing a truck. But they started off in the 1930s with a, a prototype called the Tatra V570. This was developed by uh, Hans Lidwinka, who I think was Austrian, and Paul Jare, or Jare, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. And this was an idea to make a uh, cheap people's car with an aerodynamic body. All right. Yeah, so this was going to be a rear-mounted engine with a backbone frame. A air-cooled Boxster engine with uh, swing axles and a sort of aerodynamic beetle-shaped body. <laughs> so Ludvinka believed that a rear-mounted engine would uh, have sev- several advantages. Increased efficiency, because you don't have a drive shaft. Better noise vibration and harshness. You'd have a flat floor, because no drive shaft or exhaust. Uh, going from front to back. That's also true. And um, lower center of gravity with the boxer engine and everything. And um, better uh, better weight distribution for traction in the rear end. And he thought that air cooling would be uh, simpler. Well, that was that was probably the worst part of the uh, worst decision he'd made here so far. I mean, I know rear engines don't work this well, but it sounds great in theory. Yeah, in theory, it's great. Um, yeah, and so, you want an air-cooled engine in the rear because that's where all the air flows normally. <laughs> <laughs> it, works, it works out really well. Yeah. Turns out all these cars uh, ended up needing fans to cool them, and turns out those fans sucked a lot of power away. It's okay. Vol- Volkswagen's made enough power that they had a little bit left to lose. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. boxers especially are known for just really laying on the power they are just monsters <laughs> well i mean porsche has done pretty well with them but uh not the well, not the cars that we're going to talk about today yeah so for a hundred grand they fucking better <laughs> <laughs> so having the engine in the back um makes a car inherently unstable to some degree i guess the best analogy i can think of is um like your tongue weight on a trailer, you want to put uh, more of the weight towards the front of the trailer to make it more stable. If you put it in the rear, it's going to be um, wiggling around behind your car. Same kind of thing is going to happen with a car with the engine in the back. It's going to be more prone to oversteer, um, which can be good in a sports car like a like um, a Porsche, but maybe not that great in a family car. And uh, they're prone to what's called... uh, What's that? 
Maybe it depends on the family. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so rear engine cars and mid engine cars to some degree are prone to what's called lift off oversteer or snap oversteer. Basically, yep. if you if you let off the throttle or use the brakes in the middle of a corner, it's going to cause the rear to brake traction. Well, hold on, that, though, because front engine cars do the same thing because there's a weight transfer towards the front. I think it's yeah. almost worse in cars where the engine's in the front for, for no, liftoff um, oversteer. Because once on a rear engine car, once you brake traction in the rear, all that mass in the rear, the rear engine and transmission, is going to act like a pendulum and want to keep going in a straight line. Yeah. So it's going to cause oversteer uh, more so than um, a front engine car where that, that mass at the front is more or less going where you're pointing the wheels. I, so and yeah, the I think you're kind of right. Like I think, I think it depends on like, it's more likely to happen to a car with an engine in the front, but it's easier to save if it happens to a rear engine car at all. Once you break traction, like it's really almost impossible to correct. I think that's yeah. Yeah. You're kind of all along for the ride at that. Yeah. Point. Th- there's no, because you've already broken traction and it's got all that momentum back there. You can't correct that. Whereas it's a little bit easier if the engine's in the front. So I think it happens more in front engine cars, but if it happens to you in the rear, you're fucked. Yeah. And there's a reason people call Porsche 911s widow makers for a long time. And and still do to some extent, they will snap over steer you off a cliff or into a mountainside in a second. And, and I've experienced this with my MR2 when I had shitty tires on it. I uh, was going too fast around a corner and then hit the brakes and ran into a curb and bent the suspension. Ooh, so, yeah, <laughs> uh, don't do that. It's not fun. So back to um, Tatra, both Adolf Hitler and Ferdinand Porsche were real, real big fans of Tatra. And actually uh, would go and hang out with uh, Hans Ledvinka in Czechoslovakia. Wow, fuck that guy. Um, Definitely lost all yeah. my respect. <laughs> fuck that guy. Um, so after one of these dinners, Hitler remarked to Porsche, this is the car from my roads, uh, meaning the Autobahn that he wanted to build. In any case... And the Porsche uh, guy didn't, like, fucking smack him? Like, fuck you, I'm sitting right <laughs> here, dude. <laughs> fucking asshole. Well... So um, Ludwinka says of Porsche, well, sometimes I looked over his shoulder and sometimes he looked over mine uh, when designing the Volkswagen Beetle. So Mm. basically, um, you know, Ferdinand Porsche was like, hey, this is some really cool stuff you're doing over here, Hans. Uh, I'm going to go back to Germany and uh, yeah, we'll see. Uh, We'll make a people's car over there with a, a boxer engine in the rear and. Uh, swing axle suspension. Hmm. Okay. So Tatra uh, sued Por- uh, Porsche and Volkswagen for this. Good. But that stopped when uh, Germany invaded Czechoslovakia in 1939. Oh, uh, yeah. I, sp- I suppose court got a little uh, awkward at that point. Yeah. <laughs> you can't sue me if I kill you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The, the case was reopened after World War II, and in 1965, Volkswagen paid Tatra a million Deutschmarks in an out-of-court settlement. Damn, that's fucking cheap. Wow. That's insulting, actually. 
Oof, all right. However, uh, it seems that they were both copying a Hungarian engineer named Belia uh, Beriani, who in around 1925 made a sketch that looks very much like a beetle. And I'll put that in the chat right here. Hold on a second. Boy, it sounds like uh, sounds like capitalism's innov- uh, you know ability to innovate, huh? One person stealing a design from another all the way down. Yeah, there's there's a picture um, of his uh, his 1925 design. Oh, that's a fucking beetle. Yeah, yeah. that's a beetle. <laughs> no doubt about it. No, no the the rear is a little pointier. <laughs> it looks better. It's it's better. They but they had to you know make some sacrifices so they wouldn't get caught. Yeah, I mean the concept always looks way cooler than the real thing. <laughs> yeah. And Beriani was a pretty cool guy, um, as far as I could tell, not a Nazi. He also invented World the car, but I <laughs> <Yeah>. appreciate it. <laughs> uh, he, he invented a lot of um, safety features that he, he worked for Mercedes after the war. He also invented the collapsible steering column and crumple zones in the 1930s. Oh, good shit. So this guy was way ahead of his time. Yeah, good shit. Of course, those things weren't implemented until the 60s, but he invented them 30 years before. And hold on. Part of that implementation came from this book, right? Yeah, pretty much. Score one, Ralph Nader. So um, back to Tatra, they they made a higher end car called the 77. And this was considered the first uh, mass produced, truly aerodynamic vehicle with a sort of a teardrop shape. Um, it was sort of like a four-door limousine luxury car built from uh, 1934 to 1939 in Czechoslovakia. It was powered by a rear-mounted air-cooled V8 uh, with advanced engineering features such as overhead valves, hemispherical combustion chambers, Ooh. a dry sump lubrication system. Damn, this is cool as hell. Yo, this thing had an air-cooled Hemi? Yeah. <laughs> and That's it's it's kind of cool. weird instead of um push rods it had really long rocker arms <laughs> doesn't make a whole lot of sense if you look at the diagrams but it's like all right they're just trying shit to see what works you know back then i cannot imagine the thing that you were describing yeah i'm having a hard time with that one let me uh let me put a link in the chat here to the wikipedia and you can see it doesn't have like engine diagrams, but you can see the overall shape of it. They're they're pretty cool. No, like you know, I can take or leave the design of the body of this car, but yeah, definitely an an air cooled Hemi V eight. That's dry sump, is very yeah. cool with overhead cams. Yeah. That's fucking wild. <laughs> I mean, this is cool as hell. Well, they they did have overhead cams later on. The this one was a um, overhead valve. Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought you said. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I, I conflated those things. Make no mistake, there were people doing overhead cam stuff in the 30s, but it was like, it was a per, like high-end race sort of thing. I, I've seen yeah. 30s motorcycles that were retrofitted to have overhead cams. People knew that that made more sense. It just wasn't something feasible to put into production at that point. Gotcha. Yeah, and I think... Tatra did go to overhead cams eventually. I forget when, but they kept making some 
similar cars up until the 80s that were rear engine air cooled V8s. Damn. Yeah, they're they're pretty interesting. I if I had lots of money, I would buy a Tatra. Um, they're they're really cool. Let's see. So the later model uh, T77A had 75 horsepower, which d- doesn't sound like a lot. Back then it was. But because of the aerodynamic body, it was able to go over 90 miles an hour. Woohoo. All right. Wow. And then the T87 model uh, could reach 100 miles an hour with 85 horsepower. Yeah, back then, I don't think I'd want to hit those speeds, if I'm being honest. Yeah. I feel like that is the that is the equivalent of like, oh, here's a car that we made that goes 400 miles per hour. I'll be like, that's very cool. I'd like to see someone else drive it, please. <laughs> I don't yeah. want to hit that well, speed. That's, that's kind of what happened. Um, also, aerodynamic body aside, that's not a little power for that era. Oh, no, yeah. That's a lot, yeah. No. I was, that was pretty damn good for the 30s. So when the Nazis invaded Czechoslovakia in 1939, uh, Tatras became the vehicle of choice for German officers. You know, there are these fast, luxurious limousines, you know, modern looking. Uh, It is said that within the first week after the Nazis commandeered and began driving these cars, seven high ranking officers died in car wrecks. Okay, good. (laughs) Critical support for the Tatra. Oh, yeah. Uh, some Wait, sources say that... not, not, I'm sorry, not critical support, full support in every way. I love it. Yeah. Well, except maybe for Hans Litvinka chumming around with Hitler in the thirties. Yeah. Fuck that guy. Maybe he was just doing like covert ops where he was like, I'll just get in good with this guy and make the most dangerous vehicle there is <laughs> and give them to the Nazis. I don't know. Maybe I'm getting too much credit, but I think so. I'd like yeah. to imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. Let's see, where was I? Yeah, so some sources say that the Nazis lost more officers to Tatras than in combat in Czechoslovakia. <laughs> um, and that the top brass uh, outlawed them from commandeering Tatras. <laughs> That's a little bit of an apocryphal story. Like, I haven't found that, like, solidly uh, backed up. But I, I want to believe I want to believe, yeah. Fascists so, can't drive for shit. <laughs> <laughs> what was I going to say? So after the war, there were lots of uh, compact European cars that used the similar rear engine design with swing axles because it was cheap. It's efficient. It's um, good for packaging. You can have a better interior volume with a smaller car. Um, so you saw this on like Fiat's, Renault's, and of course, Volkswagen. And a lot of these small European cars went into the American market in the 1950s. And GM saw an opportunity in the small car segment. Uh, So they're like, hey, maybe we should make our own rear engine uh, swing axle car with an air-cooled Boxster engine. So Enter Corvair. Exactly. Enter the Corvair. Of course... Unlike the Volkswagen, they decided to have six cylinders, so it had enough power for Americans. Very cool. I, I support this. Americans were right about that. <laughs> so, um, was was this like there is no replacement? Was this like a direct response to like European cars? Because I've always thought of the Corvair as such like a weird anomaly. Because you know they made Corvair vans as well, and it was 
Chevy's answer to a, a Volkswagen bus. Oh, that I right, did not yeah. know. So yeah. they made a few different body styles. Um, sedan, station wagon, pickup truck, uh, full-size van. Get the fuck uh, out. That's like a whole car company. There was a whole car company yeah. that was Corvair. <laughs> General Motors owned Corvair. What? I'm sorry. I thought and it was they, a single car. What the fuck are we talking about here? Vans and trucks and cars? What? Oh, okay. So yeah, astonished, also, truly blown away. I didn't think the the van and the truck was the same. It like it was like yeah. the exact same design, but they cut the like the back of the van down into a truck. That's bed. fucking awesome because that's what a truck I is. I love it. Holy shit! Because yeah. it, they made Volkswagen bus trucks, and it was the exact same concept. It was a really high bed because it had to clear the motor, and uh, yeah, otherwise it was just they put uh, like uh, the back of the cab very far forward and there was a little truck bed holy shit okay had no idea as soon as you described this as soon as you described this i realized i had a hot wheels of this thing when i was (laughs) they're so weird i had no idea i thought it was like just some weird hot wheels design you know yeah and i want to say with the pickup truck they had like um i don't know what you call it i think they called it a ramp side um, yeah, where like yeah. part of the bed would fold down into a ramp. Oh my god, I'm looking. Like... I'm I'm on Google Images right now. This is incredible, and it's got the little ramp. Oh, this is amazing! <laughs> Holy shit, what? It's so cute. I love it. Oh my god, I so, want yeah, one now. I like awesome. know in passing just sold a Corvair pickup. What? Wow. For, it it had the ramp know? side thing. I don't know if that was standard or on all of them, but holy do you shit! You know approximately what they got for it. Like, are these things insanely? This isn't really someone I know too well. I've talked to her once or twice. Um, I know she was asking forty. Holy shit! Okay, it it was my dreams. Yeah, Yeah, can't. It was pristine. Yeah, and that's not to say, or maybe she was asking thirty. It was it was an amount that I found surprising. That isn't to say she got that much, and it's not even to say it's not worth it because it it looked like a brand new, you know, truck. Yeah, it was in good shape. I, I did look the other day on like Auto Trader or whatever, and you can get a shitty Corvair that doesn't run for like two thousand bucks, or you can get like a real nice uh, Monza for like I don't know twenty five thousand, thirty thousand bucks. So they're they're relatively cheap compared to you know like a Nova of the same era. But I mean, I routinely see Nova for two grand, three. These did have a boxer in them? Yeah, they all like, had the yeah. same. Um, I think it was around a three liter boxer uh, six cylinder um, overhead oh. valve. And um, well, could you imagine an STI swapped Corvair? <laughs> yeah, and it would kill you so fast. Man. I'm, you know what? I, was... I don't care about the safety issues. This car is fucking awesome. And. Ralph Nader was wrong. This is cool. <laughs> this is amazing. Well, Ralph Nader is a lame nerd, and he should have shut up. Cor- Corvairs are awesome. <laughs> I, Safety be damned. I, I don't have any desire to buy it, and I haven't gotten around to stealing it. I know a guy who has a a Corvair that's been converted into a dune buggy, a la like a Volkswagen, in yeah. storage a couple of miles from my house. I uh, they are pretty cool cars, like especially. So, Unsafe at Any Speed came out in 1965, and the 1965 to 69 uh, Corvairs are actually really nice, and they fixed all the suspension issues that he brought up in the book. And Corvair fans are like, see, they fixed it. It's fine. (laughs) 
but like they still made like a couple million in the 60 to 65 or 64 that had all these problems and that's what he was writing about so um also i think it's worth crediting i mean ralph nader if you extrapolate like over the decades the safety and shit he probably saved hundreds of thousands of lives by bringing this oh, shit up. Yeah. Like, absolutely. And and I haven't done as much research into him as a person and, like, what he did after this book, but I think that is coming up in a future episode. Um, we'll talk about that. Yeah, Ralph Nader, actually, I heard an interview with him on, like, Intercepted, the Intercept podcast, like, years ago. Yeah, He's a cool fucking dude. Would have been really cool yeah. if he was president. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah. Like, he was... Yeah. A cool enough dude. Yeah, I guess I should have said at the beginning, you know, if you're my age, you might just remember him as that guy that ran for president a couple times uh, in the Green Party. But uh, he had a whole career before that. You know? Yeah, he was legit as fuck, actually. He was wrong about the Corvair, though. I, I'm I'm sold on the Corvair, um, but... Uh, we'll, we'll see what you think at the end of this. <laughs> So one thing I, I missed is um, besides all the other body stallers, they, they had both a, a coupe and a fastback. Um, so nice. this is back when car companies like, fuck it, we'll make every body style of every model, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which is an interesting choice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is the era when like, you know, this is the fifties. This is the boom time for American capitalism. And everyone knows capitalism is just choices. So they had to give you this... an infinite <laughs> amount of choices, right? They're just like anything you could possibly ever want in your car. Like we're going to make one for you. Yeah. We got, oh, you want like... a Corvair? Would you like that in car, truck or van? <laughs> <laughs> car? Would you like it? Coupe, sedan, fastback? We have three motor options for each body style. Well, yeah. they didn't actually. I mean, it was all the same six cylinder. All they right, did let, in the later model ones. Let me be sarcastic. Have a turbo charged version. Ooh, turbo was cool. Oh, what? Yeah, so That's it was cool. It was either the first or second turbo car that was uh, a production car. Um, and I think it had like around 180 horsepower, which was holy pretty good. Shit. Yeah, oh, yeah, all right. Especially with like a carburetor on a turbo. <laughs> this is awesome. Uh, yeah. Oh man. I mean, I still yeah. see people run that setup, so yeah. <laughs> it works. Uh, not great, but it works. Well, I recently saw a Tri Five that was twenty uh, at around twenty five hundred horsepower, uh, twin turbo big block that was still carbureted. Uh, damn. I, okay. Yeah, that's whack. Was it a dual carb? Yeah. Setup or is it a single car? Wow. Yeah, that's a lot going on. Yeah, no, I like as a carburetor guy, if if I were putting that kind of time and money and effort into something, I would definitely go fuel injection. No idea why he made the choice he made, but like I think he was running twin dominators. Hey, you're talking about it, so I guess, you know, that's what he was going for. Yeah, fair enough. That thing was a monster. I I feel like uh sorry to interrupt, I feel like this is a good time. I Got to head out. I've got to be somewhere uh, tonight. So enjoy the rest of the Corvair talk. I look forward to the next one. I will. Uh, I'll see you guys on the on the next one. All right. Yeah, we'll see you good. soon. Yeah. Thanks for joining us, man. Yeah. See absolutely. You later. later, guys. Later. Ooh, I forget what the.
I forget what the other thing is called, but normally it goes turbocharger into the carburetor. But these are not that. That's that one's called a blow through carb. This is yeah, they're they're draw through. Draw through, okay. Yeah. And I there's advantages to each. I forget uh how it works exactly, but I, I don't know. I know most of the time I see something like that, it's usually um blow through. Mm. But I don't I never really understood why. Yeah, I don't know. I carburetors are black magic, man. Nah. So um reading from the book Unsafe at Any Speed here. Before 1959, Ford had considered development of a rear-engine car and had built an experimental model with a swing axle like the Corvair, but abandoned it after it rolled over in the proving ground uh, handling test. Ford also bought and tested eight Corvairs once they came out on the market. Of the Corvairs tested by Ford, one rolled over during a low-speed run at the Dearborn <laughs> test track. Another rolled over while a Ford engineer was driving it. And a third overturned on a Kentucky road during a competitive evaluation trip with a. Okay, 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 okay. I want to address the first two instances, just because it's funny that they said the first one rolled over doing whatever, and then the second one rolled over when a Ford employee was driving it, which implies that the first one just suddenly rolled over. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like I I just get that the book is called Unsafe at Any Speed, but I wasn't (laughs) expecting zero to still qualify as a speed. (laughs) <laughs> how, i wonder how like how hard it is to train a corvair yeah <laughs> all right boy roll over it's like those audis in the in the 1980s that would uh accelerate uh unexpectedly but not really that was a fabrication uh maybe we'll talk about that oh, in that another sounds episode. like a whole thing um, I, yeah. I do like the implication here being that um, well, Ford tested this and it clearly didn't ever fucking work at all. And it's like, <laughs> what did General Motors do? Yeah. <laughs> like, were they just like, yeah, put that engine in there, fuck it, yeah, it, oh, all this design, and all these resources, cool, let's sell it. That's that's it. No tests, nothing. See, you can attribute it to either Chevy being like really generous with their like safety ratings and all, or like Ford just got eight of them. Like, listen, guys, you roll this no matter what. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I one of the the Corvair apologists that I saw was like, those tests were rigged. They had to like modify the steering to get them to roll, and you know, really, they were stable as any car in the same time period. It's like, oh, not <laughs> the stats seem really, to no. disagree. <laughs> I mean, maybe if you're comparing it to a Volkswagen, which also rolled over and killed lots of people, but uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's a high bar. Yeah. So again, from the book here, um, on May 18th, 1956, almost a year before the Corvair project was launched, the former head of research and development for the Chevrolet division, Maurice Ollie, filed a patent application uh, where he said what he thought of the Corvair type suspension. Quote, the ordinary swing axle under severe lateral forces produced by cornering, tends to lift the rear end of the vehicle so that both wheels assume severe positive camber positions to such an extent that the vehicle not only oversteers, but actually tends to roll over. In addition, the effect is nonlinear and increases suddenly (laughs) in a severe turn 
that's presenting potentially dangerous vehicle handling characteristics. Always judgment. Is there a but? Wait, how could that? (laughs) Wait, why was that on the patent application? So he he um, quit working at uh, Chevrolet and made a patent application for something else and that had to do with suspension. And this is just what he said about the Corvair. Damn, so, I have never quit that fucking good. Not ever. <laughs> this, cheers to this man. Uh, unbelievable. Yeah. Truly a great way to quit. At least that's my understanding of, of this reading. It's um, in the public record. I mean, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So so he wrote that in 1956 while, you know, even before it was under development <laughs> uh, fully. Nice. And they, to- they totally ignored uh, this, what he said. So in GM's own pre-production testing, uh, the usual instability inherent with the rear engine and swing axles made themselves to known to GM engineers. Uh, they attempted to solve this with a front anti-sway bar and uh, limit straps to limit the suspension travel. Uh, but this was shot down by executives because it would cause too much road noise <laughs> and, because it, and because it would add $4 to the cost of each car. <laughs> Oh my god! I'm sorry. That's that's too funny. Um, hey, they did offer great. It. I'm going to defend it though. It's yeah. <laughs> there's no incentive structure that causes these problems. It was crony capitalism. <laughs> sorry. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> four dollars. Yeah, I mean that was a lot in in you know the nineteen. Yeah, I know. I'm pretty sure it was like twenty bucks. Jesus. <laughs> So they did offer this suspension upgrade as an option, uh, but they didn't really advertise it much. (laughs) But for everyone else, the advice was to inflate the rear tires to 26 PSI and the fronts to 15. And they they put this advice in the last page of the driver's (laughs) manual. After the index Uh, or the acknowledgments or whatever they put. And according to the standards of the Tire and Rim Association, uh, these recommended pressures caused the front tires to become overloaded whenever there were two or more passengers in the car. (laughs) So you might get a blowout if you have some passengers in there. So again, from the book, a Washington, D.C. dealer advised with assurance, carry 24 pounds in the front tires and 26 pounds in the rear. The owner's manual was wrong, he said, and concluded with the aside, cars are like women. They're all different. So real nice 1960s misogyny in there also. Actually, I feel like saying that women are all different is less misogynistic than average in the 60s, because I think that mostly those people would be like, ah, women are all the same. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's I feel weird. like it's, it's a, a weird it's thing. a really misogynistic way to not be misogynistic, if that makes any <laughs> sense. It's like you were you were trying to be misogynistic. I don't know if you hit the mark exactly, but you were trying. Well, I, I'm drawing in this particular instance, I'm going to have more issue with his assertion that all cars are different. Like, no, dude, you have a manufacturing process. You should you should be making pretty similar cars. <laughs> yeah, it's just a weird thing to say. One way or the other. I feel like it I was guess. just a way to, oh, bring up, hey, we bash women too. Hey, the women, right? Ah, terrible. I think that was like part of comedy back then. I would too. have also accepted women are like cars. I don't understand them. Yeah. 
by the way, I, I just as an aside, I'm really glad that um, all humor is not just women, right? Because for a long yeah. time, that was the that was all of the that was all of the comedy you could get. Yeah, I hate my wife. Isn't that funny? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess it is now. <laughs> That's so Take my wife, please. Let's see. Uh, one engineer, uh, his recommended course of action requires a constant attention by the operator with which uh, proper vehicle design should have rendered wholly unnecessary. Uh, kind of like Tesla autopilot. <laughs> yeah. Our prolonged experiments indicate that pressure should be increased until the tires begin to lose adhesion, then reduced uh, slightly. A trial and error process. Since production units are fitted with at least three brands of tires, each differing slightly from the other, Plus the fact that loading and any suspension changes make significant differences. I feel like they're selling a Corvair and a year subscription to a race team, right? Like, what? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, he's basically like, I don't know. You figure it out. (laughs) Go to the track and test all the tires at every possible air pressure. And then dyno test. It's like, what? (laughs) These are people buying this to go buy groceries and shit and go buy a refrigerator, which was a whole new fucking thing back in the day. I mean, come on. Oh, this is crazy. This is outrageous. And like, I don't know how much of this had to do with just tires being shitty in that time. Like maybe if you had modern tires on an old Corvair, it would be fine. But I'm not I'm not going to say that for sure. I bet, though, if you had good tires and you lowered it, like really fucking lowered it. I feel like a Corvair could be pretty great. Well, then you'd have a lot of camber if you lowered it. I'm okay with that. I mean, that's the life I live. I choose that. <laughs> I choose to be cambered like an asshole. So so at the launch of the Corvair, um, you know, as these problems cropped up, there were a few aftermarket devices that were, you know, advertised to fix this. And one of them was called the EMPI Camber Compensator, which is just a great name. Hmm. Uh, basically, it was a transverse leaf spring that connected the rear wheels to the middle of the transaxle, and it acted sort of as a sway bar to keep the the rear end uh, moving in one piece. Okay. Kind of like what I talked about. A lot of people do the same thing for Volkswagens, too. Yeah, that makes sense. Pretty pretty solid. Let's see. Uh, one, one writer said, uh, the Corvair owner has more choices than a bull elk in mating season. Okay, then. Yeah, which another another interesting thing to write. Did people just know a lot more about bull elk back then? Because I don't get it. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know. Some other things that people wrote in like uh, auto journals. Uh, the car can be a handful if the driver doesn't understand its peculiarities. <laughs> the rear weight bias and independent springing together give the car rather unsettling properties at higher speeds. Take cornering, for example. The rear starts to swing outward. The rear tires dig in, but the shift in weight places them at rather odd angles relative to the pavement. These angles are great enough to increase steering force, and suddenly the car is negotiating a tighter curve than intended. The phenomenon of oversteer has intruded into the scene. Not great. Uh, Another problem with the Corvair is extreme sensitivity to crosswinds. If a sudden gust hits the car, it causes the rear to sway rather severely. Ooh, yeah, that sounds real dangerous. Yeah. That sounds bad. And and Tatra's tried to say uh, help this with having like a tail fin 
which I don't know if that helps or hurt. Uh, I would think that would hurt because cool. uh, it's usually the side winds that catch you. Yeah. <laughs> huh. Yeah, kind of a bad idea. I was idea. sitting here trying to imagine how that could possibly help, and you just <laughs> swoop in with the, no, it's just going to blow you over now. I mean, yeah, I, I again, I which one of these days on the podcast I'll talk about it, but I I, I drove a sprinter van like across the country over the road, and uh, let me tell you, wind was fucking scary in that thing. I mean, it was nine feet tall and like mostly You know I like air. drive on the regular, right? What? Have I ever mentioned that I like vans? Yeah. <laughs> But what'd you say, though? I didn't hear you. I said, have I ever mentioned that I like vans? Before that, though. Oh, I don't know. Oh. How am I supposed <laughs> to remember two thoughts ago? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, but, like, yeah, you drive a van. You know those sidewinds will fuck you up. So It's fucking real. Yeah, it's it's scary. So if the Corvair was especially bad, yeah, I'm already, I'm against it now. I've, I've definitely gone the other way. No more Corvair, Corvair support from me. I was secretly anti-Corvair this whole time because I think they're ugly. Mm, They're weird looking, for sure. I do kind of like the Fastback Monzas, the later model ones. Those look cool, I think. I even think that the the Corvair van is the ugliest van ever made. Yeah, it's ugly, but it's very cool. It looks very super utilitarian. I love it. I will say that the, the only Corvair I genuinely like is their Lakewood station wagon. That thing is beautiful. And also listed as the most dangerous in terms of rollover. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> it's got all that mo- more uh, more weight. I have higher back. center of gravity and more weight in the back. Yeah, that's why I love it. A- anything that might kill me immediately has my heart. Oh shit, that Corvair Fastback does look fucking sweet. I- I'm kind of maybe I'm back on the Corvair train. That's fucking cool. Oh yeah, I mean I would totally drive. Like, I mean I'm sure they're like sixty thousand bucks, but like. A, a turbo Monza fastback from like you know yeah, roll, 67 or whatever. I roll them dice. I think yeah. it would be. I want to get one of the Lakewood station wagons and, and LS swap it. Ooh, also very <laughs> all crazy. these problems. I mean, that might actually weigh less than the stock engine. I'm not sure if you got a aluminum one. Ooh, I mean, I don't know because even the an aluminum one still weighs several hundred pounds. Like. Yeah, I mean, probably not. I mean, the the Corvair engine, it had iron cylinders and the, and the rest was aluminum. So I think they're pretty light. Yeah, it's probably fairly light. I've literally watched somebody pull a Volkswagen, like flat four, out of the back without like tools. Yeah, yeah. They're like, you know, 150 pounds or something like that. Yeah, I mean, like the guy wasn't having a good time, but he did it. Yeah. He was he pulled the motor on with his car parked on the sidewalk. <laughs> oh, I miss Philly. <laughs> Let's see, where was I? Um, so in 1961, GM President John F. Gordon gave a speech before the National Safety Congress entitled Safeguarding Safety Progress, in which he declared that the traffic safety field has in recent years been particularly beset by self-styled experts with radical and ill-conceived proposals. Like The general thesis of Sorry, what? I was just going to say, like, seatbelts and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. Basic shit. Oh, I mean, I'll get into that more in, in uh, future uh, episodes, but uh, he goes on. Uh, the general thesis of these amateur engineers is that cars should be made virtually foolproof and crash-proof. <laughs> this is the only practical route to Fucking greater asshole. safety. And that the federal regulation of vehicle design is needed. 
this thesis, of course, is wholly unrealistic. We need 50 different regulations from every goddamn state because that's that's better than federal regulation. <laughs> right. I mean, and that's kind of what it was. I'll, I'll go on in future tra- chapters. Like, it was kind of the Wild West uh, back in the 50s and 60s. <clears throat> Honestly, I can't even understand why a car company would want states to be able to make their own fucking regulations because it's like, isn't it better to just engineer to one set of standards than 50? Uh, yeah, I, unless you have a, a manufacturing plant in every state, well, even why then, would you want that? I just, look. Yeah, I, I mean, I routinely, you want nothing to be interchange. Interchangeability is the dream yeah. in manufacturing. That is the goal. That it's it's literally like that's why I like Chevrolet stuff so much is because there's so much interchangeability. Yeah. That's... So wh- yeah, why would you want? It's already wild enough that California has like so much different emissions stuff, and like yeah. I've ac- I've accidentally like bought parts on eBay that were used and came from California and did like I was like I don't know what the fuck I'm looking at because there's like extra weird air vents in these carburetors and shit. Weird. Yeah, because they have to like run different emission stuff. Even yeah, like, I got a motorcycle carburetor that I had to plug up a bunch of vents that were just machined into this otherwise regular carburetor. Huh. Like, why would why would I want that? Yeah, I feel why like would anyone of, want that? A lot of businesses and like capitalists are not actually very smart. Like, I I, <laughs> I I want that to be like a recurring theme. Is like these capitalists are not smarter than you or I. They really are not. They are dumb and they advocate against their own interests often because they're stupid and they've had everything handed to them. So it seems like a good example of like exactly that. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, so I'm going to, I'm going to read a little bit longer passage here and content warning. This involves a bodily injury. I mean, if we're doing content warnings, uh, we should have done that before I did like explained what I worked on this week. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this one's a little worse. Um, so Mrs. Rose uh, Perini did not read about Mr. Gordon's complaints. Uh, Mr. Gordon, the GM president. She was learning to adjust to the loss of her left arm, which was severed two months earlier when the 1961 Chevrolet Corvair she was driving turned over on its top just beyond the San Marcos overpass on Hollister Street in Santa Barbara, California. Exactly 34 months later, in the same city, General Motors decided to pay Mrs. Peroni $70,000 rather than continue a trial, which for three days threatened to expose on the public record one of the greatest acts of industrial irresponsibility in the present century. Hmm. Mrs. Uh, Perini's experience with a Corvair going unexpectedly and suddenly out of control was not unique. There were simply too many Corvairs with such inclinations for her case to be singular. What was distinctive about the accident was the attempt to find the cause of it on the basis of investigation instead of resorting to the customary automatic placing of blame on the driver. That's good. As described by a California Highway Patrol officer, John Bortolozzo, excuse me, Bortolozzo, who witnessed the flip over while motoring in the opposite direction. The Pirini vehicle was traveling about 35 miles per hour in a 35 mile per hour zone in the right lane headed towards Goleta. He saw the car move towards the right side of the road near the shoulder 
and then all of a sudden the vehicle made a sharp cut to the left and swerved over. Bortolozzo testified at the trial that he rushed over to the wreck and saw an arm with a wedding band and a wristwatch lying on the ground. Uh, two other men came o- over quickly and began to help uh, Mrs. Perini out of the vehicle while trying to stop the torrent of blood gushing from the stump of her arm. She was very calm, observed Bortolozzo, only saying that something went wrong with my steering. After helping uh, Mrs. Pirini to the ambulance, the officer made a check of the vehicle while it was on its top. He noticed that the left rear tire was deflated because of an air out. And this basically means it broke the bead of the tire and all the air came out of the tire. Yeah, so that's bad. Looking at the road, he noticed some gouge marks made by the metal rim of the left rear tire. He gave his opinion at the trial that the distinctive design features of the Corvair caused it to go out of control and flip over, as had other Corvairs in accidents he had investigated. It was during the cross-examination of Officer Bortolozzo by defense lawyers that General Motors decided to settle the case. So basically, like, they decide... uh, There's more to this, of course, um, but they decided, you know, we we don't want all this evidence to come out, so we're just going to settle. Yeah, they settled for a reason. It was not because yeah. they were winning, so yeah. So th- they also tried to delay a lot of lawsuits. Um, delay can do many things when a large corporation is doing battle with an injured person. The corporation can hang on much longer. Furthermore, the offending Corvairs, primarily 1960 to 1963 models, can only diminish in number with each passing month. The cause of their collisions and waywardness can continue to go undetected by victims next of kin, accident investigators, and lawyers. Wow, that's dark. Jesus. Yeah. So they were just like, oh, you know, this problem will take care of itself as uh, these cars flip over. Oh, my God. Like, these motherfuckers. There's less them on the road. <laughs> Jesus Christ. So let me skip ahead here a little bit. Uh, I'm, I tried to put this in a little bit more of a linear order than uh, Nader does, because... I mean, this is a pretty dense book. It's got a lot of information in it. Um, let's see. Okay, so in 1964, they revised the suspension setup, and they a transverse leaf spring in the rear and a front anti-sway bar were included as standard equipment for 1964 models. The leaf spring served much the same function as the EMPI camber compensator and substantially reduced the tuck under hazard. The 65 Corvair came out with a more fundamental change in the form of a link-type suspension with dual control arms. These improvements represented new company policy, but not engineering innovations. They drew on well-developed knowledge that went back to GM's empirical work during the 30s and extended to the experimental rear-engine race car developed after World War II by Chevrolet's key suspension engineer, Zora Arcus Duntoff. And... Basically, what they did for a 65 and onward is they used the suspension design from uh, Corvette. So it's a it's a type of um, double wishbone suspension with a transverse leaf spring that's a lot more stable than and doesn't have those, the camber changes that a swing axle does. Hmm. Um, and in that uh, imager link I have at the top of the chat, it's got some diagrams at the bottom. If you scroll all the way down. 
of the uh, suspension design. In addition, there were two lateral stabilizer rods mounted in the rear ahead of the lower link. Other changes in the front suspension assembly, steering, and tire tread had the handling problem in mind. All were changes that automotive engineers of the 1930s would have seen the need for. So these were not new problems. <laughs> okay, so in 1961, they decided to relocate the spare tire from the front trunk area to the engine compartment. Hmm, that that looks like... so fucking goofy. <laughs> yeah, and so basically they wanted to have more cargo area in the front. That's, but it, it seems like it's going to cause even more of an issue with the weight in the rear. Yeah, so it added weight to the rear. Um, it also uh, would kind of cook the spare tire. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> it would like dry rot the tire a lot quicker. Nice. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I saw a picture and it's definitely sitting just like right on top of the motor. Like it's off center, <laughs> but it is right there. Oh, and this passage is one of the ones I was telling you guys about that a lot of car boomer car guys boomers you know hated nader for this kind of attitude when it serves their promotional interests the automobile manufacturers show great concern about the most infrequently occurring situations a continuing illustration is the elaborate defenses which they make for producing vehicles with up to 400 horsepower and a speed capability reaching 150 miles an hour is such power and speed hazardous not at all claim the companies for they provide an an important margin of safety in emergency conditions. Apparently emergency conditions include speeds of up to and over hundred miles an hour. So this is like the anti-fun police kind of claim against Nader that he was just being a spoil sport. Well, dude, that is valid though. Yeah, this was his liberal tendencies. That, <laughs> yeah, his liberal tendencies. That that aligns with I I it had never occurred to me until recently when somebody made a criticism of the Tesla Model S Plaid that uh, having an acceleration of zero to 60 in quote unquote under two seconds, it's not as 2.1 or two flat, but having that level of acceleration is not safe. Like yeah. that, that shit that somebody who, who is a trained driver and doing this shit on a closed track is good with, but like somebody who is, wants to be environmentally conscious and buy the new like Plaid model uh, is going to fucking die doing that shit. Yeah, no, I agree. I feel like it's a little bit different. Well, then again, the cars back then couldn't break as well and stuff. So, like, they needed some criticism. They were not really well engineered for the kind of power that they had. But they also weren't that fast, I feel like. Not as fast as some people remember them as, I think. Right. And a lot of the cars in this era had, like, four-wheel drum brakes and bias ply tires. Yeah, that was the problem to me. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, some of the more popular muscle cars that we think of, you know, you're still talking about from the factory unmodified quarter mile times of like 14 plus seconds. Yeah, that's that's what I mean. A lot of people think they were like super fast. I'm like, that's pretty normal for your average car nowadays, <laughs> like is what the fastest yeah. cars I mean, back then. There were a few so exceptions. The, the thing with them is a lot of them actually were pretty fast, especially for the safety measures that they had. They just didn't, they were fighting traction issues, yeah. so they didn't have the craziest acceleration, but a lot of them were very capable of going way faster than is safe. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I was, I was actually talking to a friend of mine about this yesterday, 
and he's like, oh yeah, you know, all these boomers are like, you know, my, uh, whatever firebird back in the day could, you know, roast the tires in third gear. And it's like, well, maybe that's cause you just had shitty bias ply tires. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. Able to hook up. I, I will um, never stop quoting Carol Shelby, man. There's no such thing as too much power, just not enough traction. If you can yeah. roast your tires in third gear, you need better tires. Yeah. Right. I've got one more uh, passage from the, the book here, and then I think we can wrap it up. At the May 1965 annual shareholders meeting in Detroit's vast Cobo Hall, Dr. Seymour Charles, a General Motors stockholder and the founder of the Physicians for Automotive Safety, rose to plead with management to call back to dealer stations all remaining 1960 to 63 Corvairs in order that life-saving life stabilizing components might be installed. Dr. Charles was not able to arrive at a cost estimate since there is no way of knowing how many such Corvairs are still roaming the highways. Uh, Motor Trends technical editor Jim Wright noted in 1963 that the wrecking yards have a good selection these days. <laughs> oh, God. But assuming that 70, uh, 750,000 cars have survived, the most money that such a recall would cost would be $25 million, equivalent to under a half day's gross sales or less than five days net profits after taxes to General Motors. Guillotines. Guillotines yeah. is the only fucking solution. Fuck the oh my this, god, bastard! Uh, you know, I saw something online recently, and it has completely turned me off of the guillotine. Yeah, yeah, we have wood chippers now. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. What was I going to say? Uh, this sum would include instructing owners far more clearly than by placing a note in the little red and often lost owner's manual about the importance of tire pressure differentials and about the meaning of oversteer in terms of driver response. So, yeah, that would have been nice, maybe. Yeah. Um, but as as we'll learn as we go through this book, GM and the car indus- industry in general did not give two shits about the safety of their customers. They cared about selling shiny new cars every year, and uh, after it's out the door of the dealership, who fucking cares? Yeah, you already spent the money. Yeah. Hmm. So um, that's all I've got for today on this. Um, anything else before we wrap up here? Any no, thoughts? that was that was interesting for sure. There's a oh, what a way to open the book. Uh, the Corvair does sound like it was a disaster, and it, it was cool-ish. I've learned a few things, but also it sounds like a fucking death trap. And pretty much everything back then was, as far as my understanding. So yeah, I. So this is the the book that I have is the 1972 edition. Um, I got it from the library. Uh, apparently, it's kind of hard to find it for sale for a reasonable amount of money. But this has like some editions uh, and uh, like a foreword that in the early 70s, they did an investigation into the Corvair and they found it wasn't any more dangerous than it, other similar cars like the Volkswagen Beetle. But again, that's not a high bar. Yeah, I was um, about to say, it's like, well, yeah, every car that was similar in design was also fucking badly designed. <laughs> like, yeah, that's uh, OK. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, GM, like I said, knew about all these problems and they knew the potential solutions and they just did nothing. Well, yeah, it might cost so, a little bit more on the bottom line. Yeah. 
And that's really the point of this book, I think, is not that that the Corvair was inherently unsafe, but like the original design was unsafe and they could have made it better and they didn't. Yeah, his thesis of pretty much the whole book is like, yo, you could easily make this shit more safe if you gave half a fuck. And it's the clearly yeah. the fact that you don't give a fuck that that's why. And and like I said, um, I forget his name, that um, Hungarian inventor came up with like crumple zones and, and um, collapsible steering columns in the 30s. There were people developing like airbags in the 1950s. Like there were, you know, Volvo had seat belts before any American car company did. Hmm. They could have done all these things, but they didn't. Yeah. Capitalism wins again, I guess. Yeah. And then, of course, well, naturally, uh, the, the defenders of capitalism will look back and say, oh, see, look, they fixed all these problems because capitalism breeds innovation. <laughs> it's like, no, they had to be forced by, you know, lawsuits and government regulation to do all this stuff. Yeah, they just conveniently forget all of that. So, yeah, I think that's about it. Um, Connor, you want to plug the social media and... Um... We'll get out of here. Yeah, yeah. Um, you can come follow us for uh, memes and such, and also for voting on Zach's wheels uh, soon, which may have already happened by the time you listen to this, but mm, we'll see. Anyway, uh, you can follow us uh, at Instagram and Facebook and Twitter as well. Um, pretty much on all of them, we're just Cars and Comrades podcast. So if you look that up, you should find us uh, in all of those places. Uh, and then I think we also do have a Hexbear account, which is the old Chapo chat, and a Reddit account even, I think. Yeah, and we do have an email, um, carsandcomrades at gmail.com. Mostly it's just choked full of spam right now. Yeah, we gotta go through to... that, by the way. It's been real spammy lately. I'm getting so many notifications. I... I'm like, what happened recently? When did our information <laughs> get, get sold somewhere? And, and they're all addressed to someone named Tammy. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> great um yeah so you can email us all kinds of stuff we we might see the email even maybe yeah all right well uh we'll sign off and uh we'll be back with more corvair content for you unless we do something else in <laughs> the meantime so i have a feeling there's going to be a couple things in the meantime this will probably just be an ongoing series going through the book yeah um also i should mention our email is which <laughs> we didn't actually say what the email is uh, it is cars and comrades all spelled out at gmail.com. So if you wanted to send us an email uh, about whatever, uh, yeah, that's where you find us. Yeah. All right. Goodbye. And right. Uh, we'll see you later. Yeah. Thanks for Bye, listening. everybody. Bye. We don't make the fight fire with fire bits. We make you fight fire with water bits. We're going to fight riches and not riches, but we're going to fight the solidarity. We said we're not going to fight capitalism with black capitalism, but we're going to fight with socialism. Amazingly, or not so amazingly, Cuba's crime rate is one of the lowest in the entire hemispheres. Oddly enough, it seems that when people have their basic human needs met, they're less likely to commit crimes. My calculations are correct. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're gonna see some serious shit. The free market mythology, it argues, that the most ruthless, selfish, opportunistic, greedy, calculating plunderers 
applying the most heartless measures in cold-blooded pursuit of corporate interest and wealth accumulation will produce the best results for all of us. Through something called the invisible hand. <laughs> what are you smiling about? Dude, I almost had you.